When uh, Narayan and I discussed covering the ten paramis in five diamond talks, we did recognize that we were being probably over-ambitious. Um, however, we're, we're doing our best, and this evening I, I want to speak to about two more of the paramis. The first of these in Pali is called Virya. And the second in Pali is Kanti, or Patience. Mostly, I actually am going to focus on Virya. Virya is often translated as energy. But like many Pali words, it's a kind of spectrum word. So energy doesn't really cover the the fullness of what is meant by virya. Um, And it's sometimes it's interesting the way, because another of the paramis is resolve, which Narayan is going to speak about. And she's done a very good job of kind of talking about resolve independent of the way I'm going to talk about virya. But they're they're very closely interwoven. So this word virya has many, many dimensions. If, If you were to translate it from Pali, in my understanding most accurately, it translates as heroism. courage, but it includes the dimensions of enthusiasm, of wise effort. Virya includes the dimensions of passion, um, of dedication. And for energy or for virya to be present, I think, in our practice, there equally needs to be confidence or wise faith. For virya or even energy simplistically to be directed and to be fruitful, initially there needs to be a basis of mindfulness to be know how to be present in this life. Because it's that basis of mindfulness that shows us the ways to, the skillful ways to focus and direct the energy and the effort that we have in ways that decrease pain and struggle and increase our capacity for freedom and wakefulness. Because energy, as we know it, can be directed into almost anything, the skillful and the unskillful, the wholesome and the unwholesome. Now, I think we would probably all recognize that to bring anything at all in our life to fulfillment, to fruition, requires energy. Whether it is raising a child or going on a trek or realizing our most deeply held aspirations for compassion, for love, for liberation, that, that it would be something, you know, I think sometimes there's this kind of misperception of meditation practice, you know, that we just sit down and see what happens. Well, you know, we could sit down for a very long time 
to see what happens. And without the engagement of energy, without the engagement of effort, without the engagement of intention, there's actually nothing intrinsically transforming about sitting down. Cats do it really well. Chickens are terrific at it. You know, there's nothing intrinsically transforming about just sitting down. It's the way in which what we're doing here is actually engaging this inner tapestry of qualities that we're, we're developing and cultivating and bringing to fulfillment that actually makes what we're doing here quite meaningful. It takes a considerable amount of energy, in my understanding, to to meet adversity and to meet the difficulties that are inevitably part of our lives. It takes a lot of energy to meet experiences of loss and disappointment. Um, and it requires pretty vast resources of energy to turn towards this life in which at times there's much can, that can seem broken or painful. And this, this is a kind of paradox, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, the difficult and the painful just seems to consume so much energy. And yet it also asks for so much energy for it to be understood. It takes a lot of energy at times simply to wake up in the morning and to go through our day without being overwhelmed by the pervasive and perpetual and insistent nature of our emotions and our thoughts and our mental states, to be able to meet them without getting lost and without floundering. I think it requires a good deal of energy and effort to walk a path that holds many moments of joy, that also holds inevitable moments of doubt, when, as many of you have talked about here, the, we, the size of the task seems so impossible, you know, and how much our minds go into these, you know, macro terms, you know, of the size of the task, you know. We don't always think about just the size of the moment, but, you know, it requires energy to actually meet this with, and to show up in an unwavering way. I think virya energy and its engagement with effort and courage is, is a very necessary ingredient in all of the changes and transformations that take place both outwardly and inwardly. When we look at the people we actually most admire in this world, the people of the past and the present who brought about the greatest social, political, cultural transformations. The people have made a difference in this world. Their stories are often very different, but what they really often share is this quality of virya. But the heroines and the heroes are not only the Dalai Lamas, the Aung San Suu Kyi's, the Martin Luther King Jr.'s, the, 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 the Gandhis, you know, the heroes and heroines are not always only people who have occupied these very grand and very central places. I have a neighbor who's raised an extremely disabled child. 
And I, I stand in admiration of the remarkable energy and effort they brought to what they describe as a journey of love that would overwhelm many of us. I think of, of the virya, the energy and the dedication I see in people, women who are single mothers, who are looking after parents with Alzheimer's, the unsung heroes and heroines of our time. There's a wonderful story I came across. This is it happened just a few years ago to two young children in a family from Illinois. The eight-year-old daughter became ill and was diagnosed with a life-threatening blood disease. A search went out to find a donor of blood compatible with her own. As she weakened, they looked and no donor could be found. Then it was discovered that her six-year-old brother shared her rare blood type. The mother and their minister and doctor sat down with the boy to ask if he would be willing to donate his blood to save the life of his sister. And much to their surprise, he didn't answer right away. He wanted some time to think about it. Six-year-olds can be quite thoughtful at times. After a few days, he went to his mother and said, yes, I'll do it. So the following day, the doctor brought both children to the clinic and placed them on cots next to each other. He wanted them to see how one was helping the other. First, he drew blood from the young boy's arm. Then he moved it over to his sister's cot and inserted the needle so her brother could see the effects. And in just a few minutes, color began to come back into her cheeks. Then the boy motioned for the doctor to come over. He wanted to ask a question very quietly. Will I start to die right away, he said. You see, when he'd been asked to donate his blood to save the life of his sister, his six-year-old mind understood the process literally. That's why he needed a few days to think about it. I, I think many of us really do encounter this quality of virya, of energy, of passion, dedication in many areas of our life. Certainly, it was very visible to me in, in the early years of my practice living in a community of Tibetan refugees who had had so much broken in their life, but not their dedication, not their passion for understanding, not their commitment to compassion. And I found this to be something quite remarkable. And we think, when we hear these stories and see these people, we think, well, this is quite disconnected from us. You know, I'm just going through my day in my sweatpants trying to find a breath or two and you know, getting my groceries in this not very eventful life. And we think, perhaps this is impossible for me. But I think this is a big mistake to think in this way. Patwa Rinpoche, he once said, when you hear the stories of the lives of the great teachers, Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, of the deeds they did and the trials they went through for the Dharma, Do not be discouraged. Never think they were only capable of achieving all all they did 
because they were Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and that you could never do the same. Instead, remember that it was simply by acting in this way that they all became so accomplished. This path that we're engaging in here, this quality of virya in all its dimensions is actually very, very central. It is vital. It's the lifeblood of the practice. It is actually what brings the path to fruition. As the Buddha put it, he said, if I did not trust that this path and its fruition of awakening was not possible for you, I would not ask it of you. But because I know and trust this is possible for you, I ask it of you. So I want to explore some of the domains in vir- of virya and to look at actually what it is an antidote to. And the antidote, we have actually spent quite a bit of time emphasizing, and uh, what it's an antidote to, we've actually spent quite a bit of time emphasizing this in this retreat. And it is, it is something many of you here are going to recognize because you've talked about it so much. Any guesses? Sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor, that one. That one. So many of you have spoken about it, spoken about its density, its seeming impenetrability. And actually, many of you have spoken about it in a way in which you're really starting to get the measure of sloth and torpor. And I think this is a wonderful thing. You know, because we so often underestimate sloth and torpor, you know, and just think, oh, this passing meditative problem, you know, I'll get over it. But we actually see how deeply rooted it can be and how much this mental state, it's a veil. It's a veil. The Buddha talked about it as a veil, as if you would throw a veil over this bell. And you would sort of see the vague outlines of the bell, but you really wouldn't get a sense of the bell because you can't see through this veil. Right? Now, this, this veiling factor of, of sloth and torpor, I am going to talk about it more. And, you know, I really don't mind how bored you are about hearing about it. <laughs> because that's another aspect of sloth and torpor. <laughs> hmm? We need to really, really embrace this mental state. It's so powerful. It has so much to do with boredom. It is so much a kind of trigger for doubt. Think about that. How many of you have experienced that? I can't do it. I keep falling asleep. I can't be present. It's too much for me. I don't know what it means to be connected. It's such a, it's so often rooted in discontent and furthers discontent. And you know, the biggest one about sloth and torpor is it disables intention. It disables intention. When sloth and torpor is present, it is pretty much impossible to bring any of our intentionality really to bear because it just paralyzes intentionality. And that's what makes it so difficult, because we're just floundering, we're just drifting, we're just lost, and then we can't bring anything to fruition. 
You see, what happens when sloth and torpor is present, we become disheartened. We start to lose interest. We disconnect. And actually, there's aversion in it too. We want to be anywhere but where we are. It is such so much part of the landscape of depression, so much part of the landscape of despair. And I think it's so important to understand this mental state and its effect on us, knowing that virya does not arise when sloth and torpor magically disappears, that this is postponement practice. Essentially imagining there's going to be a better moment to be present in than this one. Actually, postponement practice is one of the more insidious effects of sloth and torpor. You know, when I wake up, then I'm going to really be kind. I'm going to be really interested, you know, and I'm going to be really passionate when this goes away. It's actually one of the most insidious effects of sloth and torpor. It essentially keeps us stuck. So viri is part of the mandala of uprooting sloth and torpor, and it's a very close ally of confidence and investigation. So again, as the Buddha put it, he says, in those who lack confidence, nothing positive will grow. Just as from a burnt seed, no shoots will ever sprout. Confidence is the greatest wealth and treasure, the best of legs, the basis for gathering all blessings like arms. <coughs> so we could say that virya is actually a kind of connecting quality. It's in a dialogue with sloth and torpor, just as it's in an ongoing dialogue with patience. Virya is an ongoing dialogue with confidence and investigation. And it's a dialogue that really asks for our participation. It's so important to actually see that when we develop this practice, we're actually developing a family of qualities simultaneously. It's like confidence, patience, investigation. These are all kind of like the siblings of Virya. They're, they're like the cousins. It's a close family. So look at one of these places that Virya is in a dialogue with confidence. I mean, it's probably clear that what we trust in, we will invest energy in. We will give attention to. We will value. If we doubt something, we don't. That's a kind of very simple, obvious equation in our life. So I guess the big question here is, what do you trust in? What do you have confidence in? We've said a lot up here already. Many of you have heard a lot about the Dharma. Many of you have read many books. And you've probably noticed that this is a journey that offers real possibilities of awakening, not just for a select few. That this is a path that really offers us the doorways into calmness, into equanimity, into mindfulness, into boundless compassion and metta and equanimity and liberating insight. And these are actually possibilities for each 
woman in this room. No one is excluded. No one is not qualified. No one is left out. Okay, so how, how do we hear that inwardly? Do we hear that as kind of words that pass over, you know, sounds like a good idea, you know, and you know, maybe when I retire or, you know. Or do we actually really pause and actually allow that to actually really be felt? This is what we're doing here. This is what we're actually doing here. We are at, what we're actually doing here is, is to come to realize for ourselves exactly the same freedom that the Buddha realized. So, do you have your, the confidence to take your place in that family? In that sense of possibility? Do we have confidence in our sense of capacity? So, how does that come about? It becomes, it comes about because we bring the energy and we bring the passion to really looking so carefully at our lives, looking at what is actually the cause of, of, of torment and struggle. What is really, what does it mean to actually feel the end come to realize the end of struggle and torment in our lives. This is, this is actually what virya and passion and the path is concerned with. These, these very real questions that we can hold. You know, we often tell you to take things not too personally. I would really like you to take this personally. You know, the way you're not talking about somebody else. They're actually talking about our own journey, our own life, our own sense of possibilities. And to have confidence. As the Buddha put it, when there is no virya, it's like a person in a boat who has everything but the oars. This is what confidence really is. Now, I think this confidence is really, this confidence in the way it engages with interest and passion is actually really the, the kind of foundation of the path. And I think we out without it, I, I think what we experience is what I would call episodic virya. So you have a great sit, you know, a really good walking period. Oh, you feel the energy, you know, and the passion, you know. We're we're starting to look into cave opportunities, you know, and you know, um, you know, planning our next three month retreat, you know, and you know, you know, a teaching career coming up, you know, and it's kind of like episodic, period, isn't it? And then, of course, you have the following sit, which, in your term, terms of reference, might look like a total disaster. You know, where everything goes wrong. And you notice how the, the energy collapses? And, 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 and the narrative is different? And the whole identity is different? And, and you're starting to kind of think about your life, uh, you know, working in Ikea as a failed yogi. In a, so, <laughs> so I'm not going to tell my Ikea story. <laughs>
I have a great idea. Dharma talk on Ikea that we're going to tell <laughs> So here is, here is an example of this. A modern master described how the Buddha had encouraged his monks and nuns by stating that those who practice diligently would surely be enlightened in seven days, in, in seven days. And they're not in seven days, and in seven months, or even seven years. This is in the Satipatthana, by the way, the discourse. That if you practice diligently in this way, even seven days is enough. We got three left. Three and a half. Hmm? So a young American monk heard this and asked if it was still true. And the master Ajahn Chah promised that if the young monk was continuously mindful without break for only seven days, he would be liberated. So excitedly, the young monk started his seven days, only to be lost in forgetfulness ten minutes later. (laughs) Coming back to himself, he again started his seven days, only to become lost once more in mindless thought, perhaps he would do after his enlightenment. And again and again he began his seven days, and again and again he lost his continuity of mindfulness. A week later he wasn't enlightened, but had become very much aware, more aware of his habitual thoughts and wandering of mind, a most instructive way to begin his practice on the path to real awakening. Now, the kind of confidence that we really treasure in this teaching is kind of not an ideological belief system. We never ask people to believe anything in this teaching. We ask people to question and to see for themselves, rooted in their own investigation. And all of meditative practice, in a very real sense, is experiential investigation. It's not conceptual investigation, it's experiential investigation. So we're investigating moment to moment our capacity to step back with mindfulness, to take a clear and honest look at our life, at the nature of our body and mind. In doing that, we are also taking a step back to really look in our own experience at the universal laws that run through all of our lives. When we look carefully into our own experience, we see in this practice that we are invited to face our mortality and the mortality of all things. We actually begin to see experientially there is nothing that we can call our own, that we can define as mine, not our body, not our possessions, not our identities. We begin to see experientially the emotional, psychological processes through which we perceive the world and through which we construct our personal world moment to moment. We see the causes of suffering. And sometimes we see their end moment to moment. We also develop experientially a quality of discernment. This is part of this practice knowing what is helpful and what is unhelpful, what leads to entanglement and what leads to the end. And we don't actually have to go anywhere else for this investigation. We have everything we need right here. As one of my colleagues said, you know, if I really want to see delusion, I just need to close my eyes. 
And we also begin to see that we hold in our hands the keys to unlock the prisons we sometimes find ourselves in of contractedness, fear, and obsession. And when we see this deeply, that is where virya or energy arises from. A deep abiding passion and interest. Not something superficial. Not something transient. When we see there's no quick fix strategies in this, but that if, and, and there's no magical thinking that says if we just change the conditions of our life or of the moment, everything's going to be just hunky dory. We find the interest and the willingness to walk the path as if our life depends upon it. There's a very simple formula here. That where there is interest, there is attention. Where there is an interest and attention, there is energy. This is not news to us. We've seen this work in many areas of our life. Think of the first time you ever fell in love. You're pretty interested. Nobody had to ask you to pay attention. We can have that interest in movies, in books, in nature, without anyone needing to remind us to wake up. We can have that same interest and energy even revolving around our favorite obsessions and resentments and cravings. It's the same formula that's working. There is attention, but I think what is spoken about in this path is specifically wise attention. Because we all have attention, but attention can be quite unwise in how it's directed, and it can be quite wise. We see how easily our attention is drawn to the dramatic, the lurid, the exciting, the intense, inwardly and outwardly. We see how easily our attention is drawn into the realm of fantasy, um, the events of our mind, the obsessions, the rehearsals. But part of Virya is actually this discernment, really discerning what it is wise to attend to and what is unhelpful. Now, what is the criteria for that? How do you know that? I think the criteria are actually pretty simple, although not always obvious. It is unwise to attend to that which increases suffering and torment. It's quite a bit that falls in this camp, actually. Obsession, fantasy, actually all our patterns of disconnection, all of our patterns of self-building, all of our proliferations. This is, where does it go? Has anybody actually experienced good outcomes? Or are the outcomes actually pretty familiar to us? What is it wise to attend to? What brings brings suffering to an end? It's very wise to attend to mindfulness, very wise to attend to process, very wise to attend to the way things change, very wise to attend to kindness and compassion and equanimity. It's learning to have a focus. <laughs> A helpful focus. It's learning a lot to let go of the habit of distractedness. 
As, as one teacher once said, preoccupations do not end until the moment we die. They end, but they end the moment that we put them down. This is their nature. There is a very, very natural and necessary uh, engagement between virya and wise effort. I think that's probably obvious to you. In some ways, wise effort is is, reckon, is is the manifestation or the way that, that energy or virya actually finds uh, a way of being embodied. It's recognizing that effort's always going into something. Do you know it takes effort to sustain fantasy? It actually takes effort to sustain obsession. Hmm? Things, and there is nothing in the mind that has an independent self-existence. That's very good news. Because that means that there is nothing in the mind that is a life sentence. That all things, all mental process, all emotional process, all self, uh, psychological process, rely for the sustaining upon certain conditions being present. You change the conditions, you change emotional and psychological process. Nothing has an independent self-existence. Nothing is a life sentence. So what we do see is every moment of our life, there is energy and there is effort going into something. In the sense that we're always, we're always practicing something, whether we're moving or still acting or choosing not to act, something is being practiced. And the question that we ask in the light of this path is what is being practiced in this moment, perpetuating confusion and struggle or bringing it to an end? So we bring our lives into the light of this kind of wise intention, energy, effort, and out of the domain of impulse and habit. This is the work of mindfulness. And it's the domain of virya and the manifestation of virya in wise effort. We recognize we actually really have choices about where we direct our attention. We really do have choices. If there's sufficient mindfulness, we have choices. Okay? We could all have great, fantastic, philosophical conversations about suffering and impermanence and non-self. But to live in the light of those understandings that actually we all have really does take effort. We could all have great ideals about living the wisest, kindest, most compassionate life. But it is really virya, energy and effort that rescues those aspirations from just being ideals and brings them into an embodied life. Now, the, the effort that is asked for is not about striving, it's not about pushing, but about consciously honoring our deepest aspirations. An effort and an energy that is pervaded by kindness, pervaded by compassion. One of those ways that effort, wise effort is really manifesting is actually in the, in the form of restraint. Not a very popular word in our culture. 
Very big in Buddhist traditions, by the way. Restraint is about safeguarding our hearts. It's about safeguarding our hearts from the, a world of patterns and impulses and obsessions. Safeguarding our hearts from the patterns of self-blame and judgment and, and, and um, preoccupation. Restraint is a way of caring for our own well-being. Have you noticed? I mean, there's not actually a lot new that really appears in the mind on retreats. But what changes is actually how we accommodate it. And and you've probably noticed there's there's some patterns that are not that helpful. You know, judgment's really not that helpful. You know, self-blame and shame and comparing, really not that helpful. But they arise. They arise. So what are your choices here? Well, think about having a dinner party and somebody uninvited shows up at your door and knocks. It's great to offer them a glass of water. You don't have to invite them in for a five-course meal. You do, and they're probably going to come back. Think about that with some of our patterns in terms of restraint. We can offer them the glass of water. Hello, how are you? How are you doing? You know, yes, there you are, my old friend judgment, my old friend shame. We actually don't need to feed them and offer them the five-course meal. If we do, they will come back. It's about what we're feeding moment to moment. And it's very helpful to know that this, this thing about feeding patterns is also where we have choice. I think one of the greatest gifts of Viri is to liberate our heart from being held in the grip of the world of conditions or the belief that our heart is hostage to the world of conditions. We can go through life, you know, just believing that the conditions of the moment hold an intrinsic power to make us happy or unhappy, make us angry or glad. And the very essence of the Buddhist teaching was to challenge this belief. Yes, there are many difficult experiences and events and conditions in this life, much that can be difficult, much that can be lovely. But it is our own hearts and minds that generates anger or gladness. Part of this, part of the conditions actually, that really does shape our world of the moment is the condition of our state of mind. And it is the third foundation of mindfulness. I will talk about it more tomorrow. But in in our culture, I think, you know, there's such a strong belief system that says, you know, uh, how we feel about something is the most legitimate and determining factor in how we speak, act, or relate. That's defined often. I think we've already touched on this. Defined as authenticity. If I feel good about something, I go for it. If I don't feel good about something, I avoid it. If I feel bad about something, it's quite legitimate for, for me to to diss it or to to beat it or to to be aggressive towards it. I think in this belief system, anything other than my prevailing mental state is deemed as being inauthentic. It's really hard work, that belief system, and it doesn't doesn't work. 
And I think the, the great, you know, one of the great essences of this teaching is that there's something more worthy than our prevailing mental state. Something most, more worthy to off honor than our prevailing mental state that indeed may be more authentic. Our capacity for kindness, our capacity for compassion and clarity, our capacity for respect and integrity, this indeed may be much more worthy of honoring than the predominant mental state of the moment. Well, you know, all of you here, whether you really acknowledge it or not, have been very heroic over these days. You've been really manifesting virya in its deepest sense. I'm pretty sure a lot of you have come in here to sit when you don't feel like it. It's not true. I'm pretty sure a lot of you have gone out and done walking practice when you really don't feel like it. And what's going on there? That's, that's actually virya. Because you're actually honoring something much deeper than your mental state of the moment. And we don't even always really consciously recognize that. But I would say, well done. You know, because that is, whether we really name it that way, that is virya. That is that quality of courage, that quality of heroism, of actually walking through the mental states and foregrounding our deepest aspirations and embodying them. Embodying them. And that really, and if you really talk about what Viri is about, and very centrally, it's that. So I've got four minutes left to talk about patience. Um, I do want to say a little bit. What we see the near enemy of Viria is, the near enemy of Viria is striving. It's forcing. It's ambitiousness. It's it's that whole quality of being goal-oriented, image-oriented, sometimes in our culture, images of perfection-oriented. That is the kind of shadow side of Viria, you know, the preoccupation with outcomes. And this is not Viria, this is near enemy. And that often actually produces a kind of effort which can be quite brutal and quite judgmental and quite quite harsh, really quite forgetting any element of kindness and compassion because it's just focused on the result, what the result will be, getting somewhere. So it is in turn an abandonment of what is. So that's not very, it's its its near enemy. But when that near enemy is operating, we become really impatient with ourselves. We become impatient with others. And that kind of impatience is a kind of aversion. We feel that. I'm not getting what I want. Uh, the outcomes are different than what I think should be there. I don't like what's happening. And then we get disheartened again. So Viria really needs this cooperation with patience. And the Dalai Lama once defined it as the willingness and capacity to be upright in the face of adversity. Now, the quality of patience that we talk about in the paramis is that genuine willingness to again and again and again and again and again and a thousand times again to meet this moment as it is. To meet ourselves as we are. To really have the patience to put down the argument with the way things are. 
and there's a patience to embrace all things. Now, patience also has a near enemy, which is endurance. So much complexity. <laughs> when, my, when I was a child growing up, um, I, I don't know if any of you got exposed to this awful mantra. Um, and, and I used to sort of object to the unacceptable, I might say. I wasn't objecting to the with things. I was objecting to the unacceptable. My mother would have this, this saying. She would say, patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Often found in women, seldom found in man. <laughs> but actually, you know, what she was really saying to me was, shut up. What she was really saying was, you know, just just kind of suck it up and get on with it and, and you know, don't object to the unacceptable. So the, that's not the kind of patience we're talking about either. The kind of patience we're talking about here is, you know, we we actually don't know the benefits of a single sitting that we turn up for. We actually don't know the benefits of a single walking that we complete. We actually don't know the benefits of simply showing up moment to moment. What we are doing here is planting seeds and we are recognizing the limits of our control. But we're recognizing what we can do and what is in our hands is to plant the seeds again and again and again. And we simply do not know the time of their flowering. We do not know the time of their growing. But we do know they are worthy seeds to plant. We cultivate metta in the midst of restlessness and aversion and we don't know the outcomes of that. But we do know that we are walking a different pathway than the pathway of habit and reactivity. And we know that that is something worthy to honor. So patience is related to the quality of our way of being moment to moment. Patience is related actually to our intentionality and our commitment and not to the results. It's what actually guards us again. It actually guards us against losing our presence of mind and allows us to remain undisturbed and unswayed by the waves of doubt, the waves of, of resistance, the waves of wanting answers just to be still, like a pool in the forest, just to learn to be still. It's an antidote to anger. It's an antidote to anger. Being upright, want, an antidote to the tendency of the mind that so much wants something to be over, wants something else to begin, wants something to be our own, frustrated when the world is uncooperative to our desires. If there was a mantra of patience, it would be this too, this too. A friend of mine, he was having a conversation once with, with one of the Dalai Lama's tutors. And he was trying to explain to, to Ling Rinpoche the concept of manana. 
And he said that Ling Rinpoche was listening to his explanation of Manyana and he was kind of stroking his chin. And he said, I don't think we have a word in Tibetan that describes such a sense of urgency. <laughs> Do you get that? Think about it. <laughs> Manana, I don't think we have a word in Tibetan that describes such a sense of urgency. <laughs> I think of the patience of that. I think of the patience of that. That kind of not leaning forward into even the concepts of later or tomorrow, but that kind of total surrender of time. You know, that kind of stillness that, you know, there doesn't have to be a time frame. Just that openness and that stillness. And I think taking that urgency out is a lot about taking craving out of our path. And impatience has so much to do with craving. Learning to rest, learning that the beauty of that stillness that this too, this too, it is. That's what I must to meet just this moment. All that Buri asks me to really do is ask me to really explore what it means to liberate this moment, to awaken this moment, and to know that that is actually sufficient. Learning to be patient with ourselves, learning to be patient with others, Learning to be patient with all things, I think, is really this this quality of, of actually surrendering insistence. Surrendering this sense of demand that allows things just to be as they are. Okay, we have a couple of moments quietly together. <coughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.